books on books on the brain. <laughs> Welcome back to Books on the Brain, a podcast of books and nonsense. I'm Deirdre. I'm Danielle. And I'm Carly. And today we have a very special guest on the podcast. If you have listened to any of our episodes, you know that this author has made an appearance several times in our current reads and other segments that we have done. And so it is with great pleasure that I welcome Victoria Schwab to Books on the Brain. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm going to throw up. I'm so excited. I've already cried in front of you, so I feel like if that happens again, I'm not as embarrassed. Fair. I cried in front of you as well, though, because I cried (laughs) during that entire talk meetup, so I have already shown that side of myself. We love it. We love to see it. Oh, man. Um, How is everybody's day going so far? I'm ahead of you guys. I'm, I'm I'm in Scotland, so it's afternoon here. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had a great morning and by that. I mean, a terrible morning because I had one of those creative days of like working on a thing all morning and then realizing like, oh, I'm going to delete that. Mm-hmm. So, oh, you know, yeah. it's part of, I always say you have to write it wrong in order to write it right. And today was one of those lessons. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. But it stings. <laughs> yeah. um, this is a pretty great way to start my day. So yeah. even though I just woke up, mm-hmm. I'm pretty ecstatic. <laughs> Ditto to that, yeah. (laughs) Me too, me too. So we have a recurring question for all of our guests on the podcast um, because all three of us met on TikTok. So is there a TikTok sound that is currently stuck in your head? I mean, okay, it's, they're the ones that I never know what the origins are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like always like the deep voiced, like, male that's like you know a fine I'll do it myself and then it's like oh, yeah. always a jump cut to like from like a norm court to like completely sexy and I'm always mm, yes. like excuse me this is confusing uh, in a <laughs> way. but I always my problem with the TikTok sounds is like I need to go on the deep dive to understand where they've all come from because that's um, it, it distresses me when I can't place something mm-hmm. yep um, I have spent many an hour lying in bed trying to find where the sound came from <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate the accounts that yeah. do the like origins of the yeah. TikTok sound, especially when it comes from like t- obscure TV shows and movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm always like, thank you very much. Google knows everything, but sometimes it is hard to like find yeah. the exact sound bite or like it came from like a verbalization of a manga. And you're like, where? I just want to know where it came from. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just want to know. That's delightful. <laughs> uh, Carly, Danielle, what about you guys? Um, I still have, okay, I like it, Picasso stuck in mm-hmm. my head. It's yeah. so good. It's so funny. That's a good one. I have that scene from Clueless. So it's like, if she has a concussion, you have to keep her conscious, okay? Ask her questions. What's yeah. 797? Stuff she Stuff knows. She knows. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. It is every video on my yeah. free page. Mm-hmm. Every single one. They're never not funny. They're always funny. Never. I will say that probably one of my favorite videos of all time goes to that like, oh no song, like the oh no, oh no, oh no, like playing in the background. And it's like a dog. It's like a very small dog progressively stealing like it's an owner's entire meal. Like this dog weighs five pounds and it becomes like truly a fight scene where mm-hmm. the dog is holding on for dear life. I just, I always love this. <laughs> it's like a very, very easy laugh. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, I have the one 
it's the the guy was on a call and he's like i've got to go you're boring me now Mm, what a waste of time yes (laughs) (laughs) on a constant loop Oh man. Oh, what a great what a great little time on TikTok we're we're all collectively having. Um Victoria, you made a TikTok kind of recently. Uh and it was a moment that like was widely celebrated throughout the BookTok community. People were very very excited for you coming onto the platform. Uh even though that you're not actively making content right now, uh what made you decide to get a BookTok account? Um, I could not help myself. Like I, I will hear, I owe so much to book talk and I love, like I'm a lurker. So even though I have like two videos, it was truly to get it out of my system because mm. I, it's not my chosen creative outlet, mostly cause I am not nearly entertaining enough. Like I feel like I've learned to write books. That is the one thing I can do. <laughs> I'm not here to try and learn any other mediums with any form of skill. So I am a, I'm a great appreciator of the medium. And for some reason, one day I was feeling just enough FOMO that I was like, <laughs> damn it, I need to do one. But I will say like, I look at other authors who do them constantly and I, I'm impressed, but I, you know, it's the same way that I don't play video games and it's not because I don't love video games. It's because if I did play video games, I would never write a book again. Like yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, there are only so many hours in the day. So I don't also, as somebody who lives on the Instagram, Mm-hmm. I have like already so much antagonism with the algorithm that I oh, think yeah. I would lose myself into the TikTok algorithm madness. So it was really me trying to get it just full on out of my system. I was like, gonna do one, say I did it, and then leave the building. And um, I will say that like every now and then I feel just a just a little prickle of desire to do another one. And instead I just watch other people be exceedingly clever. I love that. Fair enough. Awesome. And having an account allows me to like, because I'm a real low key lurker and I see a lot of it every now and then I'll just like pop into a comment with just like a little mm. heart emoji or something. Cause I just, I, it's like, I don't want you to forget that I'm there. You know, mm. I just want you to like live in the like tiny knowledge that I'm watching. Um, <laughs> They're always yeah. watching. They're, They're always, always watching. <laughs> always watching. Oh man. Um, speaking of book talk and Addie LaRue, um, we saw last year Addie gain an immense amount of popularity, largely in part to book talk. Um, have you noticed a change or shift in your readership since your books have been talked about on book talk? Um, and are there any other books that you've noticed gain more traction? Oh yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible. And it's really interesting because I can't, I can't dissociate the two things. I can't dissociate Addie's immense success from book talk so I don't know like uh, the book was doing well and then all of a sudden book talk was like hello so I, I don't know but I I will say that for whether it's part and parcel or whether one's a factor to the other you know I had this sudden about a million new readers show up very quickly uh and I've always I mean it's very tricky because a lot of people found me through Addie LaRue but Addie LaRue is my 20th published novel and um I've been growing very steadily over the that decade and so I don't ever want to like discount the readers that were there before Addie, but it was also like, you know, I was picking up probably a hundred thousand new ones a year. And so to all of a sudden have a million drop in 12 months, it's like, it's a very, very large um, expansion of the ecosystem. (laughs) And so it was really interesting. And what I think is the coolest is that I've now gotten to watch those who found me through Addie go back through my other works. 
Mm -hmm. Um, so in a lot of ways, I'm glad that Abby LaRue is the book that TikTok found because Mm. it was like, oh, look, I have a backlist for you. Right. (laughs) Enjoy. (laughs) But I did think it was really funny because I mean, book talk has, while it's extremely broad in its taste, it does seem to favor the sad and the romantic. And I, I usually (laughs) do not write those books. Like I, I write sad, but I don't write romance and Mm -hmm. and it's it's intentional. I write romance as like a, a reward for my mm-hmm. characters, not the, not the central aspect of them. And in a lot of ways, I just think it's really funny that like, I hope I'm not misrepresenting myself. People come and find me on Addy and then they like go to Vicious and I'm like, sorry, <laughs> super villains. Um, but it is really cool to see, obviously it, it's cool to see, you know, writers like Adam Silvera. Um, and it's interesting because even though they both die at the end, got the kind of the the boost like Addie did more happy than not is my favorite of Adam's mm-hmm. books so I'm always it's I love getting to see Cersei and Song of Achilles like these books that I mean they just bring me so much joy I also just think and I've talked with Deirdre about this before in in the book talk meetup but like I think it's just an incredible gift to the readership community to take the quiet act of reading and turn it into a communal event to mm-hmm. make it feel chic and popular like nothing (laughs) happier than book talk making reading cool Mm -hmm. Um, because I was obviously kind of counting on that like I like (laughs) reading I think reading's cool so it's just really nice to see in such a time where we have like a massive amount of content to see books not left by the Mm -hmm. way you know at a time when a lot of shorter media and shorter form and louder forms can kind of take center stage it's really exciting to see people hoisting like 700 page novels and being like let's read this together that's what the cool kids are doing (laughs) and it's such a cool like marriage of those two things right Mm -hmm. finding these longer form content and finding ways to create shorter form content from this media is really fun and cool and i feel like has created so many really cool bridges and connections with people kind of internationally in the book community, which is funky. And also it's just like, I I could see it coming because something that I noticed that I think one of the reasons that I am able to have the career that I have is because I've been fortunate enough to write the kind of novels. There's like books that you like and there's books that you like and need to talk about somebody with, talk, mm-hmm. talk with somebody. Mm-hmm. And it's not always the same book. Like there are plenty of books you like, you read, you forget. But every now and then it's like, you like a book and you like hand it to your friend and you hand it to their friend and they hand it to their friend and so on and so on. And I've always been really fortunate that that's my readership. People read Shades of Magic and they give it to their four friends who give it to their four friends. And it, it becomes the expansion. I used to have when, you know, a book event would happen and somebody would come up and it'd be like a group of six. And I would always say like, which one of you started it? Because that's, oh, yeah. and I feel like book talk is that, right? It's that mm-hmm. energy of, it's it's separating out books we like from books we need to communicate with our friends and have discussions about. And I yeah. love that um, because I just think that's what stories are made for. Stories are made to create a dialogue within the readers, you know? And so I I'm not surprised by how book talk has flourished, but I love that it has flourished. Definitely. Oh, that was such a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, Victoria, you write some of the most deliciously intense villains on the market. How does one write a good villain? Ooh. I mean, I, I struggle to write the heroes, right? I just like, <laughs> um, I think that the key that I found is obviously there were times in entertainment uh, where things were pretty black and white, where mm. like the good were good and the bad were bad. But the fact is that the vast majority of people in the world are somewhere in between. And I mm -hmm. think that the thing to remember when you're crafting your antagonists is that when we're reading a story, we most of the time don't relate to the good in people. We don't see a hero being awesome and think, I'm awesome too. I connect with you. I see you. We see somebody <laughs> being jealous or forlorn or lost or hopeless or wanting. We, we relate to the flaws. Mm. And I think whether you're writing protagonists or antagonists, understanding that like what you need to do is write people. You need to write the complexity and the cracks and the failings. And I think you can give those failings to your heroes as well. But I think that it's less about, I mean, obviously we need to make the heroes less good, but it's more about taking the villains and making sure that they have a why. Mm. Like, this is not a time for world domination. This is a time for this person slighted me. I feel right. mean, I need to prove myself, you know? And so I think that's understanding motivation because at the end of the day, it's never what people do that we connect with. It's why they do it. Dang, that's a great answer too. It is, it is. <laughs> <laughs> words, man, words. <laughs> I feel like every time you talk, it takes me five minutes to process what you said. <laughs> and I'm just me sitting too. here like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, fair. Um, <laughs> myself as well usually sometimes my parents be like you think about what you say in advance and I'm like I should but... <laughs> in the past you've talked a bit about your decision to publish your adult books as VE rather than Victoria can you talk a little bit about what it's like writing in the fantasy genre as a female presenting person and as someone who has published across multiple age categories what differences have you seen between them if any yeah, and this is a really interesting question on multiple levels because now I'm re-collapsing my identity and now from Gallant on, all my books will be published as V.E. Schwab. So my answer has changed a little bit. So in the beginning, um, I wrote as Victoria because that's my name and I was writing in YA and mm -hmm. YA didn't really have anything against female presenting and femme and women. And, um, and then I switched into or expanded out into adult fantasy and uh, made the decision to write as a gender neutral version of my name, VE. And the sexism was just rampant from the gut. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't count the number of times a fan would come up, like a fan would come up to me in person and say, I'm so glad I didn't know you were a woman. I would never would have read your books. Um, there's just Gross. this really erroneous concept of like what women and you know female presenting uh, people write and what men write and it's so weird and it makes no sense mm -hmm. uh, like women can write horror but women can't yeah. write fantasy um, or it's just not take or it needs to be like it's automatically assumed to be romantic which there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with romance in novels but it's not like we don't bring it with us <laughs> like it's not <laughs> automatic um, and so I mostly just had the philosophy that I'd rather you read the book first and then deal with whatever your feelings are about my identity rather than not pick up the book at all because of your perceptions about my identity. Mm -hmm. Now, over the last few years as like my own relationship to identity has 
codified and, and maybe became more fluid instead. I shouldn't say codified because it's still just God knows. Um, <laughs> still figuring it out. I'm 34 and I'm still figuring out a lot. Um, I just, uh, I realized that I didn't feel as in my skin with Victoria on the covers. I just wished that I could go back and make it all be just because I felt like that was me. Just mm-hmm. felt the most me. Um, and so when it came time for Gallant, which is my first all ages read, which is like a really weird way to think about it, but it's the only way I can think about it. Like you could shelve it in middle grade YA or adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I asked my publisher, I said, I know historically I've been published as Victoria in middle grade and YA, but like, this would be really important to me. Uh, I just kind of want to be one person again. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's where it came back to, but absolutely like perception and inherent sexism within the industry played a huge role in the in the split to begin with if I could go Mm. back I never would have published as Victoria um mostly because I also just like the shorter name on the cover I think it's cooler but but moving forward I feel really good about just being VE on the covers just because I also I've talked about it a little bit online but it is an identity issue for me but it's a it's a little bit more than that it's a little bit messier than that I wish that everything was simple which is that I need a, like a tiny remove from author me and human me. Mm. Like, yeah. well, obviously like what I, you, you were kind enough to ask in the beginning what I preferred to be called. And I do prefer to be called Victoria as a human, mm-hmm. but like, it's really hard. And there's so much dehumanization that happens with creative professionals where we're like assumed the number of people who think they like can speak definitively on me as a person based on a book that they've read of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, made me realize that I wanted like one slice of armor between mm-hmm. human me and the version of me that people were going to create identity for in their own head because mm-hmm. I can't really control one of those and so that was the other reason that I decided like okay I'm Victoria to like my friends and family mm-hmm. but I need kind of to have a mantle when I when I'm an author wow what a beautiful answer oh my goodness <laughs> Uh, the answer is it's messy I wish it were simple yeah. it's, it's sometimes yeah. it's simple I think but like you know it took me tw- took me like 20 something years to figure out sexuality and then mm-hmm. another like eight to be like oh gender is different and so it is really messy and at the end of the day like I don't really have a sound bite for it but I that's kind of where my process is right now wow I love that I love that um you have some of the most beautiful special edition books I've, that have ever been created ever yeah. in the world, ever, ever. Um, <laughs> which one is your personal favorite if you had to choose? Uh, the, hurt, the hurt in your face. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like such a gift. Like you just never think, oh, I'm going to be cool enough to have like more than one edition of my books. Um, the white Addie LaRue, which is a mm. limited edition. It was mm-hmm. signed. Uh, there were only like 30,000 printed and it has artwork from the, from fans yeah. that, was, that was curated. And like that to me is probably, is probably the most amazing. Mm-hmm. I will also say there's just like every now and then a foreign edition comes along that is so perfect. The Dutch version of Addie LaRue has a cat. Yeah. It's so pretty. Yes. <laughs> has a cat printed underneath the cover. Hold on, I'm grabbing my water. Um, and they just make me really happy. <laughs> I always just feel I, lucky. Yeah, they're like, I think 
they really popped off with the Addie LaRue special editions. There are mm. some, like, I live in Canada, and sometimes we don't always get the pretty versions of the books. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we, more often than not, will get whatever the U.S. gets. Um, but the special edition of Addie, Relu- Addie LaRue that I have is really pretty. It's so yeah. pretty. Like, oh, I feel so... I also... Every time I see it, I'm like... Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I am um, also... I just feel really lucky every time I get a special edition that has fan art. Mm. Yeah. I'm so lucky to have that fan art and I want to make sure that the artists feel that love. Mm-hmm. So, Definitely. What a cool, what a cool like collaboration to be mm-hmm. able as an author to come together with your community and like uh, utilize them for uh, things other than just reading being like, I, we have this connection, but also this other, uh, like relationship that can be fostered that's so cool well it's community is i think is the key word there as you say Mm -hmm. which is just that like i am not a you know i yes i make things but once the book um goes out into the world it becomes a communal property Mm -hmm. and so wanting to engage with that community in some ways and just like show my love and show that i see these things and i feel so fortunate to have that kind of dialogue happening in the art and to be able to share it in some way. It's always just really exciting to me whenever I get the opportunity to do that. So we've had it for Shades of Magic and now for Addie. There was an edition of, um, Uh, Fishes and Vegfold. I yeah. think it's the UK version, the hardcover. I don't even know if it's a special edition, but I've like, I'm like, I'm saving my money. Mm. And one day, I'm gonna track down someone who's selling them, and I'm gonna buy them because I think they're. Is it the white ones? Yes, they're, they're so pretty. I will tell they're you, they're amazing. Well, the, the paper that's used on those covers is textured. Uh, <laughs> it's <Gloria>. very pleasing. <laughs> Why would you do that to they're me? They're wonderful. Like. And I can, I can say that because, like, I, you just don't have that much control as an author. So you just get, you feel really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> they're just beautiful, like, books to, like, they're beautiful books to read, but then also to display, which is, like, the best of yeah. both worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's exciting. There's a couple, there's going to be some special editions of Gallant that I'm really excited to see. And I've seen the, like, end papers and the undercover art, and it's, it, they're incredible. <gasps> that is so exciting. Yeah. It's also talking of art, like so cool to have a book for which the art is integral to the plot. Yes. Yeah. Mission that. Um, Cause it's not like I had a question in my inbox this morning that was like, is the UK edition going to have the art? And I'm like, the art is part of the novel. Like these are like, <laughs> art, like it's an absolute perspective in the book. Totally. So that to me was really exciting. Again, anytime I get to use art, I just feel very, very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually have a question about the illustrations, Danielle. If you want to, yeah, we move can... that one up since we're already talking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, um, obviously the illustrations in the novel are stunningly beautiful. They are breathtaking. Uh, what was the process like designing and creating those images? Oh man, that's such a good question. Um, complicated. So basically, I I wrote essentially didactics, like museum didactics, Mm. or Mm. every work of art, and I titled each work. So because I knew how important it was going to be, essentially what Mm. the artist thought was the title of the piece, like loneliness, Mm. and then a description of what needed to be within the work. 
so that if there were like Easter eggs or clues, I could make sure that they were represented. Or, you know, in one of them, I mean, the shape was important. But okay. like in a lot of them, it, I mean, Manuel Sabarak, who did the art, is just so incredibly talented. It's so cool to look back. Maybe at some point after the book's release, I'll release the titles that I had like given to him. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Because it really, I mean, it was a, it was a, a trust fall creatively mm -hmm. because I, these, like I say, the, anyone who reads the book will see that the artwork is inextricable from the story. It is complete, like if it had failed, a, a piece of the book would have failed. And so the absolute relief that I felt when it, when those works came in, uh, I just, I just sobbed because I understood how important it was and he did such an, a marvelous job of it. Mm -hmm. They're so, so beautiful. And like, uh, yeah. but yeah, they're, they're all, like I say, I, looking back on it, I remember when I sent the email, when I was still writing the novel and I sent an email to my editor being like, hey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> tell me if this is not possible now, because if it's mm -hmm. not possible, I have to rework an entire element of this book. Right. But do you think this is something that Harper would be willing to do? <laughs> and she was like, I think we can make it work. Like, thank you for giving us enough time. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to write it as if that's a yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's such a really interesting book. Calling it an all ages read. The other thing I want to say about it is that that is probably a luxury I would never have had at any other point in my career. Like you don't get to be a debut author probably and be like, I'm going to write a book and you're not going to know where to shelve it. Is that okay? Um, but I was very fortunate that Harper, who's always let me kind of like take a swing. I remember when I turned in the Savage Song and I was like, guess what? It doesn't have any romance. It has a lot of monsters and it's super violent. Um, and it's about like violence in America. Uh, they were like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, there's going to be like a perspective from the monsters and they're going to eat souls and there's meat. Like, and my editor was like, I, we're going to figure it out. It's going to be okay. Um, Harper, who's like known for their romance in their YAs historically. And I was like, you can't have yeah. it. I don't want to do it. Don't make me do None. it. I'm not going to make <laughs> you do it. Um, but when I took this story to Martha, my Harper editor, uh, she was like, all right, let's do it. She was like, you figure out the story. We will figure out how to market it. Love that. That's awesome. Our next question actually has to do with um, your books crossing sort of like age boundaries is the best way to describe them. Um, so not just Gallant, but I feel like a couple of your books kind of feel fluid across age boundaries, even though they kind of have been given a marketing shelf. Um, as someone that publishes across age categories, can you talk a bit about what that process looks like for you? And do you think about that as you're constructing the story or is it something that develops through the process? Yeah, sorry. I feel like that was part of an earlier question and I failed immeasurably at answering it as well. So this is great. Thank you That's for bringing okay. it back. Um, <laughs> The short answer is that nothing changes for me. Mm. I don't, when I'm writing a middle grade, I don't write any differently than when I'm writing YA or adult. The only, the only thing I'll say is that when, when I'm looking at audience, I'm never writing for anyone else. Because here's the fact, I was like a weird kid and a weird teen and a weird adult. I don't know how you were at 12. Like mm -hmm. I can't predict how anyone else in this world was at 12. So I can't really write for any other 12 year old. What I can do is write for me. Mm -hmm. When I was 12, I know exactly who I was and what I needed. And then I can write for myself at 17. 
and know exactly mm -hmm. who I was and what I needed. And then when I'm writing my adult novels, to be honest, it's whoever I am at the time. So Vicious was written when I was 25 mm -hmm. and Vengeful was written when I was 30. And what's really interesting is that a lot happened both in my life and in the world between those two books coming out. And you can tell Vicious is extremely masculine novel. Um, and Vengeful is essentially about female rage in the year 2018. <laughs> so mm. like there was just a, a context is super important. I think sometimes we forget to account for the context in the creator's life. Mm. Well. Yeah. That is timeliness happens not only for the work, but for the worker. So I um. I think that that's really all that informs me. You know, when I sit down to write a Cassidy Blake novel, I just know what a weird kid I was. <laughs> I was super, I had a morbidity complex that 34 years in, I have not shook. I have mm -hmm. not gotten rid of. Um, and I wanted a friend and I felt really attached to my parents. And also like, I didn't have a place in the world. So like when I'm writing Cassidy Blake, that's who I am. When mm -hmm. I'm writing um, Olivia Pryor, in uh, in Gallant or Kate Harker or August Flynn in the Savage Song, um, I was I was an angry teenager, and mm. it had nothing to do like I had a good life. I just you know I was closeted and I was closeted to myself. I didn't have the language, the, the vocabulary. I didn't know how to express the ways in which I felt different. I took it all to be a reflection of me, like that I was failing in some way to blend in, to be normal, to be like other girls, quote unquote. And so a lot of it felt very claustrophobic and very isolating and very unheard things, which are extremely relevant to Olivia Pryor and Gallant, but also to Kate. Uh, and my anxiety formed like August Flynn's where it was just circuitous and like I would get lost in my own head. So I'm really just looking at like what did I want 17 year old me to pick up and see herself in? Mm. What did I, what mm -hmm. do I, what do I, you know, writing Addie LaRue, I was 30. Mm -hmm. What's so interesting is I had the idea for the book when I was 23, but when I wrote it, I was Henry's age. Mm -hmm. And all of it became about that cusp of fictional adulthood that all of us face where all of a sudden we're told, well, now you're an adult, you know what you're supposed to do now. Mm. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> and so it's like, I'm just writing to an age of myself. Mm. That's, that's such a great answer. And I think it kind of part and parcel answers this question that we see a lot in conversations about like, what is what people should be reading when in their life. Mm. Like we see a lot of gatekeeping of like, this isn't for children or this isn't for, or you shouldn't be reading YA when you're this age, whatever, whatever. But it's what I think the actual answer to that is, is, well, let's write diversely within those age categories so that there is something for everybody in every age category. I think that's what your books do. Well, and, and thank you. And to that end, um, there's no romance in Gallant. Mm -hmm. And it's very, mm -hmm. very specific. It's very nuanced in ways where I, you know, I feel like if a specific kind of teenager reads into it like they will notice like Olivia has an interaction with a boy and mm. it, it was nothing for her mm -hmm. you know and if you want to read into that into her sexuality or if you just want to read into the fact that like not everyone at 14 15 16 needs a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner some of them like some of us at that age are just trying to figure out ourselves <laughs> yeah. And so for yeah. me, like it was very one of the reasons it's all ages is because it was very it would have been very easy to make it a quintessential YA novel we make Absolutely. the master of the house into a sexy teenage boy. It becomes very quintessentially YA in terms of like 
in terms of like mass appeal. Mm. And I, and, or we make Matthew not her cousin, right? Like we do all mm. these things. And I, I said from the beginning with my editor, I said, I'm not making a romance. Mm-hmm. Like this is about Olivia and found family. Mm-hmm. This is a hundred percent not about the sexiness. Like, yes, there's a desire beyond the wall, but it is the family element. It is the belonging. It is the house. So I feel like a lot of that was written because honestly, at 15, I didn't need romance. I needed to figure mm-hmm. out who I was, you know? And I feel like there's a lot of pressure. I love that there's also like deeply erotic shit for 16 year olds. Like get on, you know, like, <laughs> but at the same time, like to your point, I think we need to have the diversity of, of identity that comes with just being different people in different contexts. And like, I, one of the reasons I struggled with reading YA when it was a a baby genre, when I was a teen is like, I didn't need that. The same Mm -hmm. reason that in my adult works and in my teen works, in all my works, I don't really write coming out narratives because I didn't need a coming out narrative. By the time I came out, I was like 27. What I needed was queer existence narratives. Mm-hmm. I needed queer characters just taking up space on that page, regardless of their gender and sexuality. I just wanted them to be valid for being people. So I think that a lot of it is just understanding that we need to have all of those things. It's the other reason that I mm-hmm. write middle grade horror. I needed that. I needed to know that other people were thinking about death and loss and fear when yeah. I was that age, because I was told like, oh, you're too young. Don't worry about that. Oh, Yeah. Kids think all those things and to keep the tough topics away from kids is a really disservice to them. Mm -hmm. They're incredibly intelligent. They're also like, that's such an important age that I'm extremely protective of in terms of reader, right? Because that's when you Mm -hmm. learn what you're comfortable with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about being a a 10-year-old reader is you learn that like when something in the book scares you, unlike real life, you can put the book down. Yes. That's how you discover what your comfort level is and how it changes is like you learn that you can put the book down not somebody taking it away from you Mm -hmm. like you need to be able to put the book down if it's not right for you in that moment definitely retweet Retweet. (laughs) and now is the time where we talk about banned books (laughs) no 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 we're not we already did you can go back and listen to our banned books episode if you want it's 7 a.m here i'm too i can't too early too early for that kind of worms um, so Gallant comes out on March 1st, this very exciting. It's, um, it will be out when this episode comes out. So if you don't have it yet, we can what are all you endorse doing? that you go should get it. go get it. <laughs> um, what can someone expect heading into Gallant? Ooh. Um, okay. It's quiet. And I think mm. when I say quiet, somebody else might hear like soft. But that's mm. not what I mean. When I say quiet, mm. I mean tense. I think there are the kind of books you read in bed at night. I think yes. there's like that kind of quality of like, you know, there's some stories that you can like project with all of your voice. Like this is one you have to whisper. Mm. I think that that's okay. Once again, I know I'm going to get slammed for it. I know I'm not going to be, I'm going to be slammed because there's no romance. I'm going to be slammed because the book's not loud enough, because it's not bold enough, because it's not, I've already seen because it's not complicated enough. Um, well, no, it's 300 pages instead of Addie, which was like almost 700 or Shades of Magic, which is set across multiple worlds. This is a very insular. I want you to be able to read it in a day. I want you to be able to like curl up in a window and lose a few hours. It's meant to be that kind of story. 
It's exactly what it is. That's Mm -hmm. literally how I read the book was in one sitting. And I was like, I looked at my clock and I was like, time has passed. (laughs) What is this? Like the thing, I guess what it is, is so this will be my 21st published novel. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. That's crazy. (laughs) I'm just like a haggard old crone trying to live in the I just want to see the witch in somebody else's fairy tale. It's fine. But, um, but I think here's what you learn. Like you don't think... There's so much I haven't learned in 21 books, but what I have learned is like, for me, sanity means never trying to do the same thing twice. And that's mm. really hard when you come off of a big win, like Addy. Yeah. Come off of a big success. I remember going into Addy, because people always forget there were like 19 books before and you go into Addy and I thought, well, nobody's going to want this from me because it was so different from everything else I had published. And then after Addy, it was like, nobody's going to want anything but Addy style. And I was like, well, crap, this is a way to lose, lose all the time. Mm-hmm. And so what you had, what I had to do was just let go of that. And there's a really mm-hmm. amazing Ted talk by Elizabeth Gilbert, actually, in the wake of Eat, Pray, Love, where she talks about like knowing that your biggest success is behind you and how that can either be paralyzing or it can be extraordinarily liberating if you let it Mm -hmm. and so I think what happens is with each book I try not just to be better but to be different I want to stretch in a different way it's not linear you know Mm -hmm. and so I think that's something I'm really proud of with Gallant is that I I wanted to do something different just the same way that I wanted Shades to be different from Vicious and I wanted Savage Song to be different from Shades and I wanted Cassidy Blake to be different from the archive like I just I always want to do something different because at the end of the day like that's how I feel creatively fulfilled so Mm -hmm. Gallant is in so many ways so different from Addie but at the same time I think of all the things I have that I'm working on, the exact right thing to come after Addie. Mm. Because in a lot of ways, it's stylistically, poetically similar. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quiet in a lot of ways that Addie was quiet. It's funny that Addie is like this sprawling romance and this is a a death tale, essentially. (laughs) It's a ghost story. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel right about it. I had somebody ask me recently in an interview, like, aren't you worried about how many people you're going to lose between like Addie and Gallant? And I was like, well, but that, that, that creates the assumption that everything I wrote so far has been Addie. It, Whereas like mm, Addie was yeah. tangent from a lot of other things. I'm just trying to make a tree here and everything's yeah. going to be its own branch, but it's all, but I'm the trunk of the tree. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, what a weird question to ask. I'm so sorry <laughs> someone asked you that. That's yeah, it's, oh, I'm tomatoes. used to it at this point. But it's funny that, and I do, like, I mean, I, I, I feel in some ways beholden to this huge new readership. But at the mm-hmm. same time, like, that's a really good way to lose the love that you have for mm-hmm. making. I think, and I speak on behalf of the collective readership. <laughs> <in this. laughs> I don't think we could ever be disappointed in you i think no Mm -hmm. matter what you write we will come in hordes and read it so Mm -hmm. i wouldn't worry about that ever let me this will be my psa then right (laughs) try one of my books and it's not for you that's okay try a different (laughs) one try a different one because like truly i look at my favorite authors i don't love all their works equally Mm -hmm. what i'm trying to do though is like when i write a novel i'm not trying to write it for everyone but i'm also not even trying to write it for my entire readership I'm writing it for one part, like one person. I usually have a spotlight and it's like, I want the people in the spotlight to feel like they're being lit. And then anyone else who feels that light 
who's not in the spotlight, that's a bonus. But mm-hmm. I'm writing for the people who write to me and say, I found myself in this book. I saw myself in this book. I needed this book. Then mm-hmm. when you have those people, sometimes it's a thousand or 10,000 or a million, whoever, however big that spotlight is, it's very easy to accept that some people are in the dark on that one. Mm-hmm. You know? Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> you know that I am a big fan of your work. Um, and I've read a a significant amount of your uh, backlist at this point. And I think what I enjoy most is that they're all different and I don't know what I'm going to expect going into them, but there's this level of comfort because they all still feel like you. And when I sort of talk about your books online and I have people asking me whether they should read your books and which books they should start with, I constantly go to Shades of Magic because that is my personal favorite and like holds a very special place in my heart because that was the first book of yours that I read. Um, And I always tell people like they have a huge backlist, like you have comics and graphic novels and YA and middle grade, like there really is something for what you might be looking for at a particular time in your life. It's the doctors and Doctor Who, you guys. It's like whatever you you feel an allegiance to that doctor. Mm. Like I came to Doctor Who on Tenant, so it's very (laughs) hard for me not to love Tenant that. Like it's just, I just think it's like it colors our experience, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Um, It means, it means the world. Okay, I'm gonna hop into another question if that's okay. Uh, the world of Gallant is incredibly lush and beautifully vivid. What inspired you to write this story? And when in your writing timeline did this project fall? Ooh, um, great question. All good questions. I feel like I should say that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so Gallant was in the works for four years. So I'm trying to place it in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I had like, the reason it was in the work for four years is I had many false starts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this happens usually when I have a piece of the story, but not the entire story. And that's essentially mm-hmm. what happened is I started with the house. Mm-hmm. I love creating setting as a character and I wanted to have something claustrophobic, right? Like I wrote the archive, which is set primarily in a hotel and like turned apartment buildings. I just like like the nuclearity of space. Anyway, and I had the garden wall. Now, the reason this took four years is because the first three years of me trying to plot this story, I thought I was writing a fairy tale. Ooh. And, like, I kept thinking of the world beyond the garden wall as like mm. a more Holly Black-esque space, something more fae, right? Mm. Okay. Now, I am a huge Holly Black fan, but it didn't feel right to me. I kept trying to write this. And then, you know, I wrote them as like a king and queen beyond the wall. I wrote like, I wrote an entire, like I tried to write a court. I tried to write all these different versions of this place beyond the wall. I finally remember one day online, someone asked like, what do you feel like is the commonality of your books? Cause they are so different. And I mm-hmm. sat down to try to write a Venn diagram. And I realized I had one intersection in all of my books on my Venn diagram. And that was death. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh. Um, and like specifically the concept of death as a two-way street, because mm-hmm. that's the thing that brought me as somebody who's like, has a morbidity complex, that's what gave me peace was this idea of death as a two-way street. And as soon as I started thinking about the place beyond the wall as an underworld instead of a forest, everything mm-hmm. changed for me. 
And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I know what story I'm telling now. But it took probably three and a half of the four and a half years of writing it to figure out that story. I would try every six months or so because I was working on Addie at the same time. I would revisit mm-hmm. it every six months and I would be like, I haven't cracked it yet. Um, and then it was a combination, all happened in like one week of realizing that I was writing a death story and having the very last page of the book. I never start writing a novel until I know what the exact last page looks like. And the last scene in the finished book is the last scene that I came, is the scene that I came up with for the last scene at the piano. And um, mm-hmm. as soon as I had that, I was like, and I'm obviously trying to speak as vaguely as possible. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. Piano, and I was like, oh, I know exactly what this story is now. And I sat down and I started writing it. And it's the first book and the only book I have ever written beginning to end. Like started on page one, wow. ended on wow. page 300. I normally write completely out of order. Mm-hmm. So wow. it was complete first. I think it only works because it's a single point of view um, and a single timeline, which again, that's a first for me. But yeah, it was a, it was like four to five years. It was, I'm not a, like, I'm a, people think I'm a fast writer because I'm a prolific writer. It's just that I'm a relentless writer. (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Wow. Um, I just wanted to say, um, I like got a little emotional when you were talking about um, like gender identity and just like identity as a writer. I'm in school right now to be a writer and like everything you just said, like really touched me. So I just wanted to say like, thank you for being so authentic and true to yourself. so oh, I'm gonna get emotional again, but uh, it was just really great. <laughs> anyway, next question. <laughs> Let me just say, no, no, you're you're so welcome. But let me also just say, like, I think that there's a lot that I don't like about being a public figure. Again, mm-hmm. it's probably half the reason that I switched to VE to try and give myself a little bit of protection because I'm a mm-hmm. very sensitive person and I take everything personally. But <laughs> I will say that I think the thing that I feel most fortunate about for having um, a platform is that I can be honest in ways that I'm not sure I would be brave enough to be honest if I didn't have the success and the safety of where I'm at. Mm -hmm. so to me like that's something that I take a lot of pride in is like feeling like at this point okay I'm not gonna get kicked out of anywhere (laughs) but I own my house like (laughs) like, you know people can be assholes on the internet but like um but that means a lot to me and I'm glad in any way I could make you feel more seen because that's truly just like probably the reason I try is be as transparent as I am both about creative process but also about like the complexities of being a human Mm -hmm. uh, because I know that there were a lot of times in my life where I didn't feel like I would have been brave enough to be that honest, even if I had had the words. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I've it's got just... a thing that's going to help you. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Oh, oh, finally, I've been And for our listeners, uh, Victoria just went and grabbed her little kitten. Seven months old. And she's huge. So cute. As you can tell. So cute. It's like, yeah, I know. He really doesn't like so much fluff. So you have to hold him like in a kind of a (laughs) strategic embrace, if you will. Oh. Anyway, but he always makes me feel better when I'm feeling vulnerable. So. Yes. <laughs> I'm, gifting, I'm gifting you this fluff. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Well, last question about Gallant. Um, Olivia is a character who questions so many things um, around her. And because she is mute, her ability to speak is dependent on whether or not the people around her want to listen. What was the writing process like in Gallant navigating a protagonist who cannot speak out loud? Yeah, as somebody who uh, relies pretty heavily on my dialogue skills, like, <laughs> there were many times during the process where I was like, this is a choice that I made. Mm -hmm. um, but it was very important. Weirdly, there was there has never been a version of this story that existed any other way for Olivia. Mm -hmm. Olivia was, has been nonverbal since the day that I conceived of her as a character. It felt very important to me weirdly like you know I can go and I can give it a very deep answer which is talking earlier about like what I needed and who I felt like as a teenager and not having the vocabulary and not having the language in a way that feeling yeah. very claustrophobic uh mm -hmm. in my own skin I um I think it if it worked really well because a lot of the story is about making Olivia feel isolated mm -hmm. and making mm -hmm. her feel alone and also the ways in which people do see her and the ones that are able to communicate with her and the, the trick when that's not necessarily the good path, but it's the tempting path because it's the easier path. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a challenge in a lot of ways. Like for instance, it was a challenge um, and I, I anticipated that it would be this way, but thankfully we were able to like, I was very explicit with my um, publisher about the audiobook. I said, it absolutely cannot be narrated by a girl because uh -huh. anyone will then assume that even though it's told in third person to avoid, you know, having people think that they are directly inside Olivia's voice. Um, I don't want anyone to be able to layer a voice over Olivia uh -huh. in a way that makes it like seem like her. So I was like, we need a, like a distanced male, you know, kind of like classic fairy tale narrator. Cause I was like, I don't want you, you don't have access to that voice. That's her voice. You know, and so a lot of it was just thinking about also that we have a very limited definition of voice. When mm -hmm. I say voice, we think verbal, mm -hmm. but it's like Olivia has a, a, a huge voice in the story. Yeah. It's just, she has a completely different set of communication, but mm -hmm. she's very capable of communicating. Mm -hmm. uh, and her, you know, I always was always very careful in talking about the book that like Olivia is never a, a silent character. She's a nonverbal character, but she makes a lot of noise, you know, mm -hmm. sound is extremely important to her. And so a lot of it was just thinking about the limitations or really the defaults that we put on narratives. Mm -hmm. You know, we assume that this is how a character will sound, that this is what they will say. Um, and it's like, I, it wasn't convenient, right? Like Olivia, nothing about Olivia's life is convenient. There's so much, you know, there's a moment in the book where Edgar, who's at one of the house workers where she, at, at Gallon, he turns away when he doesn't want to have the conversation anymore. Yes. And she comments, mm -hmm. you know, through the, through the story, um, through the narration that that's all he has to do to end the conversation. Yeah. Not look at her hands. And um, that kind of sense, I think that impotence you have when you're a child or a teen, it feels like you can't control anything including yeah. the conversation totally. yeah we were actually just talking about that um bit in the story mm -hmm. um before the call and um there's also a bit in the beginning where um she talks about having so much it's like sound inside of her but she can't get it out and as I've been reading this book um 
there's like, not that I'm nonverbal, but there's so much of that, that I very much feel like I relate to. And so it's been really exciting to read this character who just like, I feel like all she wants to do is break out of this box that she's in. Mm -hmm. But then people keep like shutting her down or like closing doors on her and it like keeps her in this box and so she's just trying to keep opening it exactly wow wow um so we have come to our current reads section of the episode would anybody like to start is there anybody itching to talk about what they're reading right now or recently read I'm reading, well, I've, I'm reading several things right now, but I'm reading um, My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones and talking about angry girl characters. It's about like a slasher obsessed girl who is convinced Mm -hmm. like a death starts in her town and she is convinced that it's the beginning of a new slasher saga. And because she like kind of sees herself as like not the main character, but she like has such an obsession with slasher films that she's like drawing the connections everywhere. And she's like almost excited to be in the middle mm. of one because she like sees um. the archetypes. It's very dark um, uh, from the author of The Only Good Indians, which came out last year. And it is an amazing, amazing book, but like, it's interesting after Gallant, like it, cause she has so much anger inside mm-hmm. of her. There's so much everything is like allegorical to what's going on in her own life and it's a weird weird book and weird books are my favorite books um I can go next um I recently finished reading Twisted Hate by Anna Huang it's uh her third novel Uh, in that series the twisted series and it is very good the series follows four friends and their subsequent relationships the first one is like uh is a it's a brother's like best friend kind of romance uh but then we find out that the brother's best friend maybe is getting close to them to like betray the family it's drama uh (laughs) the second book is bodyguard romance to like royalty which we love to see Third book is said brother from first book, romance with sister's best friend. Drama. Uh, these are definitely adult romance books, uh, probably airing on the side of erotica. So go in with that what you will. Uh, there's definitely triggers in the third book that I would look up before uh, heading into that. But uh, Anna Song's a great author. I enjoy all of uh, her novels. So... Go give that a little looky look if you are so inclined. It came out this month, last month. I don't know, recently. Recently. Yeah. It's pretty darn good. Nice. Um, I am currently reading um, The Collected Poems of Emily Dickinson. I started reading it um, for my poetry class. And it also just like helps me in my own writing. Um, just within fiction um and I like I like I was like we had to do an imitation piece I was like okay well I'll just flip through this book that's on my shelf and I realized that like I really like her work and um it's just been really interesting reading through and um they like changed it in this edition specifically they like took away all of the um the titles that the quote-unquote editors had made essentially when they found her work they Mm -hmm. took that took it all away so uh they it's just like the raw material so it's it's really a beautiful 
collection of poems. Dope. Nice. Um, I am in a fantasy mood once again. Um, took me a couple months to get back here, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, so I am currently reading the second book in the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemisin, which is Obelisk Gate. Um, but I'm not going to talk too much about that book because it's the second book in the series. And I don't think I've talked about the fifth season on the podcast before. Mm. I read it in 2020 and I still am absolutely terrible at telling people what it's about because it is <laughs> so complex and just the, so hard like, to describe. <laughs> one of the most incredible high fantasy books I've read, but also what I would say is like the highest of high fantasies. Like mm. there's high fantasy and then there's the Broken Earth trilogy. Mm. <laughs> like, it literally is apart from anything I've read. Um, there's basically this main character, Essen, um, who comes home and finds that her husband has killed her youngest child and um so yes there is child death and that is like a very central part of the book um and motivates her entire journey mm. forward um because not only has he murdered their son but he kidnapped their daughter and ran away um so she is going to leave and find her when all of a sudden there's this like shift in the world and you learn that she has some sort of power within her that is connected to the earth and because of that the town turns against her and you start to realize that what she is people in the world do not like. They kill their mm. children because they are um, magically inclined, I'll say, just as like a broad sense. Um, and so the book ends up taking place across three perspectives. And I won't get too into it because I think the way it evolves throughout the book makes it really interesting to sort of figure out what's going on. Um, but it's all connected to the way the earth interacts with their magic, how the magically inclined are controlled by fear, people in their lives, the empire, and sort of where they now fall in how their society has existed for hundreds of years. Um, and then the season is this time when there's a shift in the world. So there's like sandstorms or some sort of catastrophic weather impending thing that causes people to lose food. A lot of people end up dying during these periods of time. So the thing that is happening um, during the book is the fifth season. Um, and so you sort of figure out what that is. Um, I tried my best. <laughs> You did good. Um, you did good. So, yeah. So it, I will say the thing I tell everybody when they go into this book, if they decide to take on the challenge, is it feels very much to me like how I have to approach reading Shakespeare, um, mm -hmm. that you kind of have to get your brain into a sense of you're going to be reading something that's going to stretch your imagination. It's going to take you a little bit to get into her writing style. And she sort of takes certain words and, um, changes them for the meanings that they need to take on in her world. So like the word, she uses the word rusting, like, oh, this rusting piece of garbage. And it's like a curse word for them, which I think is really fascinating. So um, yeah, there's a lot of content warnings. Go check them out. I did not write them down, um, but I am very much enjoying the second book um, as we learn more about this world. Yeah. Um, 
Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us, Victoria. Uh, we could probably keep talking for another several hours. Um, Honestly. So al- along with Gallant coming out, you also have First Kill coming to Netflix sometime this year, which yeah. is very exciting. Um, are there any other upcoming projects that you want to let people know about to sort of have um, their ears perked up? No, so uh, First Kill will be sometime this summer. The only reason I haven't talked about it more is because it's still in post-production. I'm like, mm. Netflix is very strict. Uh, <laughs> and then um, I'm working on Threads of Power, which is the next arc in Shades of Magic. And um, I'm almost done. So that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, so excited. Um, and if people want to come find you on social media, where should they seek you out? Instagram is my chosen hub. And uh, it's just V.E. Schwab on there. I'm just, I'm not very clever about anything. I just use my name. And you can head on over to our Instagram at Books on the Brain Pod. And if you head to our most recent post, what emoji should they leave to say they've listened to the oh, episode? Ooh. I think a skull. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, not the one with the crossbones, just just the skull just would be skull. great. <laughs> um, and you can go ahead and follow us on our personal social medias as well. I'm at Deirdre Rose Morgan on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at d.j.books on TikTok and on Instagram. And I am Carly Moon with three eyes on Instagram and TikTok. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again, Victoria, for chatting with us. Uh, We hope you have all enjoyed this episode and we will chat to you in the next one. Bye. Bye.